Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll just dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come study your word. I pray that it would enrich our minds, that we would understand how awesome you are. We would understand what you are saying. I pray that that would also filter into our heart that we might have the love and the compassion that you have as we understand you more. And I pray, Father, that we would have ready hands to live out the things that we know and the compassion that we feel. Father, I do pray for this world situation. I pray for our leaders to make wise decisions. I pray for a spirit of unity, which seems only possible if you would intervene. I do pray for the dangers in this world and for all of our military men and women uh, overseas that uh, I pray for peace, but I pray, Father, also just for wisdom and that you would keep them out of harm's way. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, the Gospel of Mark is, let me show you, uh, start with a map because Mark, and none of the Gospels, by the way, are necessarily interested in telling you everything about Jesus. It would be, at the end of the Gospel of John says, I suppose if I were to tell you everything Jesus did in the three, three and a half years he was with him, there probably aren't enough books for me to tell you everything. Well, that's true. You're always making some kind of choices of the miracles, the teaching, the stories. And in the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't give you a great chronology. I mean, he's not interested in, okay, we went here, then we went there, then we went there. I mean, it, that's just not what Mark is trying to do. That's not what most ancient authors were trying to do. What Mark has shown us is Jesus spending a lot of time on circling the Galilee area and here in Decapolis. This is the place where he had the uh, man possessed with the legion of demons. He's, and that, so that's a, not a Jewish area. And then up into what's modern-day Lebanon, up into that area, he actually, you know from other Gospels, made some trips back and forth to Jerusalem through that three, three-and-a-half-year period. Mark really focuses on what he did in the area of Galilee. And if you remember, the first eight chapters, we're in chapters 11 and 12 in this lesson, but our first eight chapters talked a lot about how powerful Jesus was. I mean, if you step back and think about it, that's part of what Mark wants to tell you about Jesus. That's what Peter was preaching about Jesus. And so he talked about casting out demons, and they were impressed and afraid, and what unbelievable power, and healing people in literally miraculous ways. Uh, he also commanded nature, and we've talked about how Mark wants to show us Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God in power. He's not a philosopher. He's not a guy who came to just teach you new things. It was popular with certain, uh, with certain Jews throughout history to look at Jesus, and it's still popular today in certain circles, and say Jesus was just a rabbi trying to reform Judaism. In other words, he was a reformer, kind of like maybe Martin Luther or John Calvin. Uh, but Mark says, no, nobody else can do this. He came with power. In chapters 9 through 16, the second half, we talked about this in our last lesson, and I kind of challenge you to think about this, is Jesus shows us the legitimate use of power. If you remember, right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, I told you in a lot of ancient documents, the most important stuff is in the middle, not at the beginning or at the end. I mean, obviously it's all important, but it sort of builds to a major point. Think about what was in that middle portion. You have all these miracles. Then remember when the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest? 
who's going to be most important when Jesus' kingdom comes, because they knew he was going to be a king, he was going to be Messiah. Then remember how James and John, also in this same little section, came and said, hey, I don't know about these other 10 guys, but why don't you make us number one and number two, right? And everybody else is angry. Jesus calls them over and he says, listen, the kings and the leaders in the Gentile world, he said, they like to lord it over their subjects. He said, but it will not be this way with you. So what's really happening there? He's saying the greatest among you will be your servant. What he's really doing, I mean, he's obviously saying literally what he's saying, but if you think about it, Mark says, he's got all the power, now watch what happens and how he uses it. He uses it as a servant. He's literally going to, as Philippians chapter two says, he's going to humble himself even to death on a cross. I mean, think about it. Jesus has all the power in the universe and yet he will lay that down and go to the cross for the joy, as Hebrews says, the joy that was set before him. So Mark is talking a lot about power, and that is power is legitimately used to save, to help others, not to oppress people. And Jesus demonstrated that. And we talked about in our personal lives, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as having a lot of power, but we do. I mean, if you think about it, you're close to a lot of people and your words matter to them. Even the power to encourage or discourage. We are fairly affluent. I'm just speaking generically. We have the power, we have the means to help people who need that financially or with our time or talents. So we also can take a lesson from this in how to use the power that God has given to us. Okay, that's by way of introduction. So that's the first eight chapters. Now, Jesus in this section is making his way this is a great little map, but it basically just shows you from other gospels, his route. Mark is gonna pick up here. He doesn't care so much about the journey. He says, okay, now we're gonna to go to Jerusalem. And that's how it's gonna open in chapter 11, is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. There are interesting things that happen along the way, but Mark wants to move this narrative forward. By the way, one thing you see in all of the gospels is the last week of Jesus' life takes up a huge portion of all of the Gospels. You know very little bit, uh, very little, about Jesus' childhood. We know more about the three, three and a half years of his ministry. We know a lot about the last week of his life. And that's by design, because Jesus came to die on a cross, be raised from the dead, to basically liberate the captives to deal with the sin, this terminal judgment that we all have of sin. And so that's what Mark's gonna do. He's gonna spend the rest of this time talking about the cross and the resurrection. So let's jump into chapter 11. He begins with the triumphal approach into Jerusalem, which happened on Palm Sunday. I mean, literally the last week of Jesus' life. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, so he's right there by Jerusalem, he says, uh, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied up there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it back here. If anybody asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and he'll send it back shortly. Can you imagine them drawing straws like, I'm not gonna go steal this colt. 
you know, well, you go steal the colt. No, you guys. So the two of them go, though, but this is interesting. So they went, and sure enough, they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there said, what are you doing? And they said just what Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. As he rode into Jerusalem, many people spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And since it was late, he went to Bethany to spend the night. So this is the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. A couple of interesting, we've talked a lot about this story. I'm sure you've probably read this story in some of the other gospels. It figures heavily in our Maundy Thursday presentation of kind of tying the Bible together. But I just want to highlight a couple of points here. One is that this is a sign of royalty. All these people in Jerusalem, what Mark doesn't tell you, but we know, this is the week of Passover. And so there are tons more people in uh, the city of Jerusalem. I mean, there are 100,000 extra Jews there. I mean, there are all kinds of people have come to this town. So as he comes in, they've heard of him. They've heard of the power, and they've come to believe he's the Messiah. You have come to Hosanna, save us. You are bringing the kingdom of our father, David. That's the Messiah. The Messiah was going to reign on the kingdom of David a thousand years earlier. So they see him as the Messiah. They see him as their king. They see him as having authority. That's going to play pretty heavily in these two chapters, is this idea of what is Jesus' authority? Well, they're hailing him as king. They're taking off their cloaks, laying them on the ground. This is a sign of how you would treat a royal entrance, a king whom you will serve. And Jesus gets this kind of royal reception. The interesting life application out of this, leaving aside all the other interesting things that are happening here, but the interesting life application to me is that those people basically saw themselves submitting to the authority of their king, rejoicing at the coming of their king. They took off their cloaks and spread them in front of the colt. They put themselves and their possessions at the disposal of their king. If that had happened today, here's what I imagine would happen. First of all, he'd come riding in, be hailed as the king, and all kinds of reporters would start asking him questions. What do you plan to do about the welfare problem? By the way, our sewage problem needs to be fixed too. What are you going to do for us? What are your campaign promises? Do you have a new deal? Do you have, you know, you're going to pay our college tuition for us? You're going to protect our national defense? I mean, if you think about it, this is really interesting, and I think it's, it's invaded our minds a little bit. We think about a government and authority, and this is whether you're a socialist or whatever you, you know, your political leanings might be about the government. We have subtly over time, we think about government, first of all, as, as an authority in our lives. In fact, we accept government as an authority, not necessarily a bad thing. But we see that authority, and our question is, what can you do for me? The government owes me something. I think that that has kind of slid into our religion a little bit. Sometimes I think, instead of saying, Jesus, 
How can I put myself and everything I have at your disposal? You are my king. You know, what can I do? Instead of what can you do to help me? Sometimes I think we move into more of a religious experience, kind of a felt need kind of a thing. Uh, Jesus becomes the great helper with our troubles. Kind of have this, uh, what I call psychotherapeutic Jesus, who, Jesus, I need you to heal my mental problems. I need you to heal my relational issues. Now, there is some truth in that, but that only happens through transformation in us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't the one who come, came here to say, okay, I'll solve your problem, I'll solve your problem, I'll solve your problem, and I'll solve your problem. It's interesting when you see him entering, their attitude is, everything I have is at your disposal. Where are we going? I will follow my king. That's actually a very biblical and a very Christian way of thinking about our faith. I think our secular lives, the country in which we live, actually wants to turn that upside down. And I think that's why Christian living is so countercultural. We don't come to Jesus and say, what can you do for me? We go to Jesus like them and we say, if you want my cloak, you can have my cloak. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? You know, if somebody needs uh, your cloak, give them one. If somebody needs the book of James, you see someone who doesn't have food, you have food, and give it to them. In other words, you are saying, what I have is at your disposal. And I think this is a beautiful story because you really see that very vividly. So what does Jesus do next? So he comes in, uh, enters on that Sunday. Next day, goes back to the temple and starts getting embroiled in this issue of um, authority. Let me show you what this is the model at the uh, Israel Museum. This is what the Temple Mount looked like in Jesus' time. So this is the Mount of Olives over here. In fact, that's where we're looking from. We're kind of looking from the Mount of Olives. There's the southern steps here. Jesus may have entered through the southern steps. He may have entered this gate. We don't know. There are a lot of gates to enter, and you would go into this huge courtyard. Herod the Great had built a huge uh, courtyard. So Jesus went into that courtyard the next day. Let me just read to you what happened, because I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it does set the stage a little bit. So Jesus... When he came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to kill him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went back out of the city to spend the night. So Jesus came in to this big courtyard. Only Jews were allowed inside the temple precincts, but Gentiles were allowed in this large courtyard. And so what Jesus is saying, he goes into this courtyard, and what you find is people changing money so you could pay your temple tax, why did they change money? Because the money that you brought with you had somebody's picture on it. I mean, it's just, just like ours. I mean, not all of our coins have someone's picture on it, but a lot of them do. Jews didn't do that. They didn't make images of people. That's why you don't see statues. There are no Jewish statues of Moses. There are no Jewish carvings of what Moses looked like. They didn't make images of people because 
they took the idea of you will have no idols seriously, and they thought a picture or a statue of even somebody like Moses could become an idol to us. So they just didn't do it. So if you came from other parts of uh, the empire, you would come in and you just have some local money. Well, it usually had somebody's face on it. So you'd go to the money changers because you can't pay your taxes with that. That's not good Jewish money. And you would trade it for a Jewish shekel. And needless to say, let's just say that the rate of exchange was very favorable to the money changers, right? So there's some thievery going on here. But Jesus is also upset because this is the place where the, quote, the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jews can come in and they look around and they go, well, isn't your God magnificent? This just looks like a big old flea market in here. And Jesus said, that is not what the temple is supposed to be like. So he turned over the tables, drove out, you know from some of the other gospels, he drove out the oxen and the sheep that were there that they were selling people to take uh, into the temple. There was a specific gate you would bring the animals in to take it up to be sacrificed. Here, it's like convenient, easy shopping. You can buy it right here and then just take it right on in. And Jesus said, this is not what the temple is about. Well, that's a pretty bold thing to do, is to go in and start organizing things. It's sort of like if, have you ever had anybody over at your house? This actually happened to us before. But they come in your house and they're there for dinner and the next thing you know, they're kind of rearranging things. And you're like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just straightening this. I think this would look better over here. They come in, they start to rearrange your house. And you go, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to rearrange our house? Now, if you want to do the laundry or pick up my son's socks, you're welcome to do that. That's exactly what Jesus just did. I mean, he just came into the temple. You got the chief priest. You got the people that run the temple. And he just said, no, no more of this. This is not what this temple is about. You are making God look like um, a God of commerce. But this is a place of prayer. And so he begins to rearrange it. Well, needless to say, they don't like that very much, which takes us in to the very next story. So, while Jesus was walking in the temple courts the next day, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Okay, this is like, uh, these are the people that run this place. You've got the chief priests, You've got the elders who were part of like the Sanhedrin, the 70 people who could literally throw you in jail, and the Romans didn't care what religious rules you did. So he's in trouble. And so they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing these things? Turning over the tables and, and uh, doing what he's doing, and who gave you the authority to do this? Basically, who do you think you are? Well, this is an interesting uh, point because the priests were very, very uh, jealous of their authority over the temple. They already had the Romans meddling in their business. The Romans wanted to pick the high priest, and sometimes they were successful. So they've got them meddling. Now they've got this itinerant preacher from Galilee shows up here in the big metropolis, and all of a sudden he thinks he can tell us how this temple is supposed to be run. So what they are asking him is actually a very technical question. What authority do you have to do this? That word for authority, each of them had authority. Let me tell you how you get authority. So religious authority in those days. If you have a rabbi, you've gone through the schooling, 
and you're going to become a rabbi, then your rabbi, your teacher, it was an apprentice system. It wasn't like getting a diploma. You know, 2,000 people get your diplomas. There are very, very few rabbis and priests even, even fewer. And your rabbi would confer upon you the authority to go teach the scripture, that you have been certified, that you have been through the school. They even had uh, schools led by big, big rabbis. You've, we'll hear in the gospels about the house of Hillel and uh, the house of Shammai. There were several. Those were two really, really famous rabbis. And they had schools or houses, but basically schools, meaning they had disciples who had disciples who had disciples, and they interpreted the scripture in very particular ways. And you'll see, by the way, sometimes when people came to Jesus and asked him a question, they were saying, uh, particularly on divorce, for example, you know, well, now the house of Hillel says that you can divorce your wife for any reason, but Shammai says how the peop- those rabbis say, no, you can't just for very specific things. So they're legitimately asking him, who do you think is right? But you can't do that. You can't teach that without being granted the authority. So what they're asking him is, listen, we've checked around. We looked at all the best schools. We can't figure out who made you a rabbi. We can't figure out how in the world you have any authority to be teaching anything. You're not certified. And so what they're asking him is, You're not a legitimate teacher of the scriptures. Who do you think you are overturning this and teaching all these people? You are not a legitimate teacher of the law. So they're saying, by whose authority? Who's the rabbi that gave you authority? So Jesus turns around and he says this to them. He said, I'll ask you a question first. Very good rabbinic technique. You always answer a question with a question. Uh, Also a great technique for children when they're in trouble. You know, it's like, Hey, who did this? What? Who? What? Oh, is something broken? Yeah. So they would answer a question with a question. What he says is, I'm going to ask you a question. You answer me this, and then I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing this. John the Baptist, his baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Now, if you remember, John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. And he did a baptism of repentance meaning he was calling people saying, you need to turn back to God. You need to stop worshiping yourself or idols and you need to come back and obey God and worship God. And that's what repentance means, is to change your mind, change your life. And baptism was a sign of that repentance. And so he's saying, well, whose authority did John baptize? And so here's the dilemma. He says, was it from God's, or was it just for men? Did he make this up? Tell me that. Well, they discussed it among themselves, and they said, well, if we say that he had the authority from God to do this, then he's going to ask us, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you go get baptized? Why didn't you repent? But if we say it's just for men, he made it up, then they feared the people because the people held that John really was a prophet. And so they thought, If I say for men, all these people are going to be very upset with us because they idolized John. They thought John was a prophet from God. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. Well, it's not that they don't know. It's just that they couldn't find a politically correct answer to that question. And Jesus says, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And so you get a standoff, don't you? Well, what they're after is this guy's doing things 
that we don't think he has the authority to do. He's upsetting the teaching of what we teach. He acts like he has power and authority, and apparently he can do all these great miracles. We don't know who he is, and we don't know where he came from, and we don't like this. And so we need to get rid of him so that we can keep the people under control, under our control. And so their motives are not very pure. Here's the interesting thing, and there's another kind of a life application. I don't know if you've thought about it this way or not, but you know how we pray traditionally in Jesus' name? And Jesus said, and we do that for good reason, he said, whatever you ask in my name, I hear that. And so what we're doing is we're praying to God by the authority of Jesus. When you do something in someone's name, you're doing it by their authority. Right? If I bring you a letter that's signed you know, by the President of the United States or the Attorney General of the uh, State of Oklahoma or something and says, this says uh, I'm free, this says whatever, well, you'd go, well, by that person's authority. They have the authority to do this, so very well then. We do a lot of things by someone else's authority. When we pray, when we act in Jesus' name, we're doing things with his authority. And so interesting question for us would be, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to go out there and start rearranging the world? Because that's actually what Jesus has asked you to do. He doesn't ask you to rearrange your neighbor's living room. What he said was, this world is a mess. And so I am empowering you to go put it into order, put it into sorts. Well, what does that look like? Well, he told us that in the Gospels. Mark doesn't happen to cover this, but think about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, forgive people that don't deserve to be forgiven. Uh, and, you know, don't take revenge on people. Don't even be angry with people. Be above that. Forgive. Show compassion. In other words, this show you how to live. Take your power and use it to put things in order in the world. Put things in order in people's lives. Heal the sick comfort the grieving, encourage those people who are downtrodden. If you want to think about it this way, and you should think about it this way, that's what Jesus is asking you to do. And he has empowered you to do it. You see, we're in the same situation. We're going to go into this community as a group of believers here. I'm just talking about our community right now. And we're going to start trying to rearrange things. We're going to have a community center and we are going to try to rearrange some lives. We're going to ask people, can we help you? We have a clinic. Can we help heal you? We go into schools in this community. I'm not talking bragging about what we do. We're just trying to do what God asked us to do like every other Christian in the world. We're going to go into schools and we're going to say, can I help this child learn to read? We are putting the world in order. We are putting it back the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus said, you're empowered to go do that. You have the authority to go do that. You are empowered not just to pray in Jesus' name, you are empowered to act in Jesus' name. And I don't know if you think about it that way or not, we sometimes just think of it as, well, we have a command. No, not just a command, we've been given the authority to go into this world and set it to rights. And I just think that's a powerful idea, and that's what Jesus is doing in the temple, and then later, he's going to empower us to go do that in the world. And sometimes you have to overturn some tables to do it. And that sometimes makes us unpopular. But as long as we're acting in Jesus' name, 
we have the authority from God to go do these things in the world. Well, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes on I'm just immediately. Here's the very next thing that happens. So he asks them, well, who was it? From John or was he from God or, or was it from man? And they go, well, we don't know. And he says, well, then I'm not going to tell you that either. But I will tell you a story. And so Jesus tells them this story. It's the same situation, same people, chief priests, elders, etc. So he began to speak to them in a parable, story. He said, now there was a man who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. A lot of work, by the way. It's a ton of work. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he went away on a journey. Well, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Typical arrangement. You farm it, you keep half, I get half, whatever it may be. But he sent a servant and said, give the one who owns this, give my master some fruit. But they seized him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Well, the owner sent another servant to them. He struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, thinking, they will certainly respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, ah, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus says, I'll tell you, he will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to someone else. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this story about them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is a brilliant story. This is a brilliant parable. And he's speaking directly to the chief priests and them. And here's what he's saying. He said, God, the owner of the vineyard, and you, Israel, are the vineyard. In fact, if you look back at Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied 700 years before this. Isaiah chapter 5, read it, it's worth, it's worth the read. It talks about the idea of Israel being God's vineyard. And he said, I cared for you. I tilled the ground. I made sure there weren't weeds and I kept the animals away. It's a metaphor to say God cared for his people. And then Isaiah says, but God said, when he came to find uh, grapes, they were bad. Your fruit was, was not there. Don't you think God will be upset that he came to his vineyard that he put all this effort into and there's no fruit there? So they're familiar with this imagery. So they understand that the guy who owns the vineyard is God. They understand that the vineyard, they, the Jews, are inheriting. They're taking care of this vineyard. God is caring for them. He's feeding them. He's, he's taking care of the nation of Israel. But he keeps sending people saying, give me my portion. In other words, are you worshiping me? And who are the people he's sending? The prophets. He sent the prophets. He sent Isaiah. He sent Daniel. He sent Jeremiah. He sent Ezekiel. He sent the 12 minor prophets and many other people that aren't named. And notice what they did. Some of them, they just beat them up, didn't listen to them, threw them away. What were the prophets saying? Turn your hearts to God. Give him the fruit he deserves. 
You shall have one God and one God only. Now worship him. Turn away from your idols. That's the fruit of the vineyard. Now nah, we're not going to do that. We'll kill them. They killed some of the prophets. I mean, many of the prophets, the people killed them. And he says, well, surely if I send my son. Now what's Jesus claiming there, by the way? Guess who I, guess who I am in this story? I'm the son that came to say, turn your hearts back to God. They're going to kill him thinking that they'll be okay. Jesus is just forecasting what's going to happen in a couple of days. And they knew this story was about them. What he's saying is, you in this story are the tenants. You're the ones who beat up, you and your fathers and your ancestors, who beat up and killed all the messengers from God, and now you're going to kill his son. That's, they understood what he was saying to them, and they decided, yeah, in fact, we are going to kill you because we don't want to hear any more of this. So Jesus, needless to say, gets into this kind of issue with the religious authorities over his authority to say these things. Their solution to it is, you don't fit our system, so we're going to kill you. Well, it goes on just a little bit more. And so later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. We've met them before. Pharisees, ultra, uh, really ultra observant. I mean, they did a lot of good stuff. Jesus himself said, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you're not, you're not getting in the kingdom. But basically, they did a lot of good things. They were real legalists. And they were very harsh and kind of religiously oppressive to people. Herodians, liberal as you can get. They're like, yeah, we're Jewish, but we do all the Greco-Roman stuff. We don't, nah, we don't follow any of the laws. Yeah, we like pulled pork sandwiches. We don't follow any of the rules. So they're kind of strange bedfellows, aren't they? We've seen them get together to try to kill Jesus before, and here they come again. It's like, we're going to get you from one side or the other here. This is a famous story, but I wanted you to hear it in this context. In other words, I'm just walking through chapter 11 and chapter 12. So here you have this battle, if you will, uh, of what is your authority? Why are you doing this? And so they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch uh, to Jesus to catch him in his words. This is a brilliant move on their part, actually, because here's their dilemma. First of all, they don't want Jesus teaching and preaching and having all the people follow him because then the people might go, hey, wait a minute. You guys have been telling us this, but Jesus said, and sure enough, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Well, they don't want to lose that kind of authority or that kind of power. They also only have their position as long as they can keep things under control. If the Romans go, hey, chief priests, elders, you guys can't keep this place peaceful, then you're out. I'll find somebody who can. So they want to keep their place. So they need the people to follow them, and they also need Jesus because, see, they're worried if he's the Messiah, he might start an uprising because that's what they thought the Messiah was going to do too. And so they're, they're caught here. What they really need to do is get the people to turn against him. And they definitely need to kill him if they can so that there's no way he can upset the whole game with the Romans. This is all political, all financial. So they send some people to him so that he can embarrass him, they can get something to accuse him of. So they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. That's flattery. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, tell us this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay 
or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. Why don't you bring me a denarius, the coin of the day, and let me look at it. And I've given you a picture of the front and back of a denarius at that time. In that time, when Jesus is preaching, Tiberius Caesar is the emperor. His name is Tiberius. He followed Augustus. Remember Augustus Caesar when Jesus was born? Well, now by the time Jesus is 30, 33 years old and he's preaching, Augustus has died. Tiberius has become Caesar. That is Tiberius on that coin. So he says, bring me the coin. And he said to them, whose picture is this and whose inscription? They said, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And they were amazed because they were like, wait a minute. You didn't really answer our question, but boy, that was a pretty brilliant answer. And here's what they're trying to do. They figure they've got him because one of two things is going to happen here. Either he's going to say, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar. The people are going to get angry because they've got two issues with this. Number one, their issue with paying taxes is simply the fact that they're oppressed. I mean, Rome is literally starving these people to death to get taxes to feed the legions, to expand their empire. It's just what they did. It's what oppressors always do. So they would not think it was good to pay the taxes. That's a political issue. Like, look, we don't want our king to come in here and say, oh, yeah, we're going to keep paying taxes to the Romans. That's why we want you to be king. We want you to kick the Romans out. So it's a political thing. <clears throat> but there's also a religious issue. That is offensive to Jews. Remember I told you they didn't have graven images? You know, if you were Roman, you couldn't do anything to offend the Jews more than that. First of all, you put your emperor on there like he is a god, which, by the way, that's what that inscription says. And so that is as blasphemous as it gets to a Jew. It's insulting to a Jew to have to even deal with money. So the political and the religious come together. And so if Jesus says pay the taxes, it's like, wow, you're not a very good religious leader and you're certainly not a very good politician. So they thought that'll turn the people against him. Or <clears throat> he'll say, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, the people are going to love that, but then they're just going to tootle on over to Pontius Pilate and say, you know what? This teacher, we've got to nip this in the bud. You know what he's telling people? Quit paying taxes. Pontius Pilate goes, you have my attention because he only keeps his job if he can keep the taxes going. And so that is punishable by the Romans. Is you're basically inciting people not to bow to Caesar, not to pay their taxes. So they're thinking, brilliant. We're going to get him in trouble with the people or we're going to get him in trouble with the Romans. Instead, Jesus just turns it on them. And this is more brilliant than you probably realize. First of all, a lot of people say, well, what he's saying is we're going to split the religious world and we're going to split the secular world. In other words, money, Caesar, that's the world, pay your taxes. Your faith is over here. That's the one thing this passage is not saying. There is nothing in the Bible about, oh, by the way, you've got a separation of church and state. That's become popular in America in about the last, oh, maybe 150 years or so, is that idea. And it's gotten really popular in the last 50 years or so. That's not a biblical idea at all. And that's not even slightly what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> First of all, he's just being really wise. 
If you think that that is offensive, and the Jews did, what he's saying is, take that filthy thing and send it back to where it came from. Now, that's a brilliant answer. He's not saying whether you pay the taxes or not. He said, that's offensive. And all the Jews would go, that's very offensive. Send that filthy thing back where it belongs. Well, that's not exactly saying pay your taxes. That's sort of saying that's filthy, isn't it? He's agreeing with them. Send it back to Caesar. And give to God what is God's. Now, that's subversive. Because when a Jew hears that, what does he think belongs to God? Everything. And certainly, worship belongs to God. I mean, the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. First commandment, you shall have no other gods except me. That, says Caesar, is a god. He says, so, give to God what is God's. And the Jews go, that's everything. You're saying, we don't worship him. It's a very subversive thing to say, and yet there's nothing you can hold on to here. Right? I mean, you, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to Pontius Pilate and say, he said, uh, give to Caesar what's Caesar's? Well, what's your problem? He's going to go to the Jews and he's going to say, well, he said, give to God what's God's. Well, what's your problem? That makes sense. Brilliant, but subversive. At the same time, he's saying, yeah, that's no God at all. Let him have his coin back if he wants it. And by the way, he's no God. Give all your worship to the God who deserves it. So, brilliant answer, but sometimes brilliant for some reasons that we don't necessarily think of, okay? So what's happening? I just want you to see as we go through this, what's happening is they're challenging his authority and they're trying to find a way to undermine him and he just keeps teaching his message. Well, there's one group we haven't heard from. So you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Herodians, there's also another group of Jews called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the priestly class. They were the priestly aristocracy, the chief priests, those guys. They weren't Pharisees. They were more political. They were a little more culturally savvy. They were very interested in keeping the temple worship, keeping uh, the control of the people, doing things the way it's supposed to be done. They dealt with the Romans. They didn't want any uprisings. They wanted to keep their power. Those are Sadducees. Now, Sadducees had some theological differences with the Pharisees. Pharisees uh, believed in the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible. Sadducees did not. They thought only the first five books, the Law of Moses, right, what we think of as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they thought that was the only authorized part. All the rest of this stuff, don't care too much about that. Well, if you've ever read just the first five books, there's nothing really in there about resurrection from the dead. That's actually in the rest of, of the Old Testament. So the Pharisees said, look, when we die, we're going to be raised. God is going to judge the world. Well, that's true. But the Sadducees said, yeah, well, we only read the first five books. And it doesn't say that in the first five books. So we don't believe in it. And here was their killer knockout debate question. I mean, the Pharisees just rubbed them the wrong way. Here's what they would say. Sadducees says, teacher, now Moses told us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife and no children, the man must marry the widow and have children with her for his brother. It had a big deal to do, this is true, and it had a big deal to do with inheritance, keeping his name, his property. It was actually a very, honestly, it's a very good thing for the widow. In other words, now, instead of being, well, you're out, it's like, no, his brother is going to marry you, you're going to have kids, and you inherit 
his stuff. Does that make sense? It's actually a good thing, very good thing. They said, so Moses told us to do that. Now, once upon a time, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. And finally, the woman died too. Okay, before we get to this, what is up with this? I mean, you got one woman marrying seven guys and they all die. I'm just saying, it's a fishy story, okay? But you can see, I don't know if it's hypothetical or if it happened, but it doesn't matter. Their point is, hey, Pharisees, you believe in the resurrection of the dead, who's gonna be her husband when they get to heaven, if indeed you think there's a resurrection? They thought this was a killer debate question. So, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She was married to all seven. And Jesus replies, and you talk about a guy who acts like he knows what he's talking about. He says, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. When the dead rise, in fact, yes, they will, you're wrong, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. This is where sometimes people think when you die, you become an angel. You do not become an angel. You become something better than an angel. You are a created being, but we don't become angels. But they're like angels. In what way? He says, uh, you don't marry. Angels, you don't read anything in the scriptures about angels marrying, having family systems. That seems to be something God instituted with humanity. He said, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses the account of the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. And he just refutes them. He says, you just don't know enough. By the way, there's a great passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about this. I'm going to skip to the New Testament. He says, I'll tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable. We will get this new eternal body, and the mortal with immortality. And when that has happened, and the mortal uh, has turned to immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We will die no more. That's what the Pharisees believed. That's what Jesus taught, and that's true. So the Sadducees, they just got refuted by somebody who acts like, you just don't actually understand. I know what it's like in heaven. You don't. They're like, whoa, this guy really acts like he knows what he's talking about. And so finally... You get, you get all the different groups challenging Jesus' authority. Now remember, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We're probably Tuesday or Wednesday at this point. He's going to be crucified on Friday. I want you to see how this is a serious escalation, and Jesus is just confidently pushing back and marching on to what he knows is going to happen. Well, the final story, I'll tell you one more. <clears throat> excuse me, this ends out this section of 11 and 12. This, this two chapters is all about this authority question. Who do you think you are doing these things? And we can't tolerate you doing these things. And remember, you're, you are empowered by Jesus to go set this world in order. And sometimes people are going to say, who do you think you are? And we can't tolerate these things. But anyway, a particular teacher of the law heard them debating. In other words, he heard, he overheard this. I want you to realize what Mark's talking about is just all happening right here in a couple of days. Well, he hears that, and then he asks him this question. This was a big rabbinic question. This is a theological question. <clears throat> Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, 
he said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Let me stop and, and answer this because this is really popular in Christianity. First of all, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's not talking about the New Testament. But they would say, how could you summarize the law? They didn't say, what are the only commandment you need to keep? They're like, oh no, you gotta keep all 613 of those commandments. But what would you say summarized it? In fact, here was the big question that rabbis would ask each other, challenging each other, which commandment is most important? They'd say, explain the law of Moses standing on one foot. Well, you're certainly not gonna get through 613 commandments like this. And so their point is, summarize it. And they had different ideas about what is the most, well, you need to be holy. Uh, you need to eat kosher. And Jesus answers this. He said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he said, and you didn't ask me what the second one is, but I'll tell you. This comes from Leviticus. The second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. He's not saying these are the only commandments. He's just saying... Those are the most important things because they can kind of encompass, everything else is gonna flow out of that. And so the uh, teacher of the law said, well said, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and understanding and strength and love your neighbors yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from that time on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And so we close out those two chapters. Notice how Mark is really moving us along here. We spent eight chapters seeing the power of God. He comes to Jerusalem and he describes within a two or three day period this intense, intense debate about who are you and who do you think you are and where'd you get this authority? And then it turns into hostility an attempt to undercut Jesus. I need to get these people to hate you or I need to get the Romans to hate you because we gotta get rid of you. And you see how this happens so quickly. And Mark's doing a great job. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. And so if you think about the New Testament versus the Old Testament, the law of Moses, when he summarized it, you're gonna see this idea of loving God and loving your neighbor played out into the New Testament. He's just now gonna give us other ways of behaving that are very consistent with that. When he says, go forgive, go be compassionate, go share your cloak, all the things that the New Testament shows us is very typical of Jesus. It says, go out there and be Jesus and you can do it in my name, I've given you the power to do it. That's exactly what's happening here. Our next two chapters is a little pause. Chapters 13 and 14, when they all go away and start plotting how to get rid of him, chapters 13, 14, he pauses for a moment and does some really unique teaching in the temple. But before I tell you about that, what question do we have? Um, do you know what the summer schedule will be and how many more weeks we have of this? <laughs> what the summer schedule will be? Okay. Well, that's kind of a little segue there, okay. Um, I will tell you that this particular series, we're doing two chapters a week, 16 chapters in Mark, so we'll do chapters 13, 14 next week, 
15, 16. That'll take us to the end of May, basically. And then we will pause for the month of June because here at our church, there'll be 2.6 million children running around here in VBS. Uh, seriously, you do not want to be anywhere near it. Actually, you do. We want to come volunteer because it is really cool. But we have a lot of camps and things like that, so we don't do any Wednesday night programming in the month of June. We traditionally, and I'll have to get you some info, watch our website, we traditionally do three or four weeks in July, Wednesday nights, we just do a special class, a special series, and then we take off a few weeks in August and we kick off when school starts. I, I can't remember the date, but I believe it's about the third week in August. And so we'll just have a, probably a three or four week in July. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> I'm glad you, uh, glad you brought that up, Laura. Thanks. So kind of segueing back into my lesson here a little bit. I'm just kidding you. We're about done. I just want you to see, Mark, this is brilliant. I mean, eight chapters, power. You see the 9, 10, 11, and 12, him saying, here's how you're going to use power. You see them t struggling with him about who has the authority. And at the end of the day, Jesus is going to submit to God's will, not their will, but to God's will, and he's going to humble himself and die on a cross. He's going to be raised from the dead. And so it's, it's an interesting story about power. But as far as just the dynamics of this, so he's finished arguing. No one dared ask him any more questions. And he pauses for a minute, and he starts to talk about the end times. And he says, by the way, before I go to the cross, and they're still like, hey, I didn't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, we got a couple of days, boys. So let me tell you, I want to tell you the signs of the end of the age. I'm going to tell you the signs of when the world is going to end. So this week, you are empowered, literally. And I'm not joking about this part. I want you to feel like Jesus has given you his authority to go set the world in order. And he's told us how he wants to do it. And that's our commission. Next week, I'll tell you when and how the world's going to end. You can hold your stock for one more week. I'll tell you when to sell. See you guys. <laughs>